This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on adhesive capsulitis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Adhesive capsulitis affects 2 to 5% of the population, slightly more common in women than in men, and is most common in people between the ages of 40 and 70. And it can cause a range of problems, including pain, stiffness, and loss of function. So it's important we get the diagnosis and management right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Lance Litlerk, Associate Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. And importantly, Lance is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Lance, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is adhesive capsulitis? Thanks, Karen. Well, it's great to be here. Um, in terms of adhesive capsulitis, for a clinical entity that's very common, um, it's interesting that there's no clear definition of the pathology and of the condition. Um, we can best describe it as a condition of unknown etiology that's distinguished by painful restriction of all shoulder movements in both active and passive range of motion. It's generally characterized by restriction of the glenohumeral joint range of motion, most notably in internal rotation, abduction, and external rotation. Thank you. That's very, very clear and succinct and and helpful. How do you make the diagnosis? The diagnosis can depend on the stage in which adhesive capsulitis presents in the clinic. And this is where uh, it can be a little bit clinically confounding because in different phases of the condition, it may present to the office with different symptoms. So there's typically, we divide it into three different phases uh, of the condition. And the first is the painful phase. The painful phase, obviously, it's, it's not just a clever name, will obviously present uh, to the clinic with a primary complaint of pain. During this first phase, pain can steadily increase while range of motion decreases. In the second phase, we transition into the frozen phase. And that's, that's really where we see the most pronounced restricted range of motion. That frozen phase then eventually gives way to the thawing phase, but typically the painful uh, portion of the condition resolves first, and then range of motion uh, restores back to normal over time. So you have the first painful phase where pain is the most, and then frozen is the most pronounced in the middle phase, and then the thawing phase eventually leads to resolution of the condition. And that's another important feature of this condition is it's typically regarded as as self-limited and resolves over time. Thank you. How how long does each phase last, I wonder? Another challenge is that uh, each phase can be variable, but in general, the painful phase can last for four to six months with the frozen phase lasting another, you know, four to six months from there. And the thawing phase can be another four to six months. Um, The difficult part about this condition is that since patients present in different phases, um, we don't have a good handle on the average time that patients um, have this condition uh, before resolution. Uh, but in general, we sort of think of a window of anywhere between 6 to 18 months um, that patients may be affected by this condition before its resolution. Thank you. And how would you examine the patient in terms of physical examination? 
Yeah, so another great question. The telltale and hallmark signs uh, that really are diagnostic in adhesive capsulitis are restricted uh, restricted range of motion in both active and passive range of motion. And so typically we'll see the most pronounced effect in internal rotation. So we wanna take the patient's shoulder out to the side and about 90 degrees of abduction and internally rotate the shoulder. And obviously we wanna compare to the non-affected side to see uh, as a, you know, a loss compared to the baseline. Um, second, we'll do abducted external rotation, and we can also do internal rotation at the side with the arm of in, in adduction. Finally, forward flexion and abduction, you want to check those as well. And it's important to have the, the patient do these both actively, and then as a clinician, you want to perform these passively as well. Oftentimes, the patients will present with the inability to, to um uh, thread their belt through the belt loops, uh, or women will uh, have a complaint of being unable to put on their bra. Um, and that's due second, uh, secondary to a loss of internal rotation. And that may be a, a common clinical finding. Of course, we want to rule out rotator cuff tear um, and other conditions of the shoulder. So we want to do a thorough examination of other conditions like rotator cuff, uh, AC joint arthritis, uh, shoulder instability, and things like that. But really, the telltale sign is loss of both active and passive range of motion of the glenohumeral joint. Okay, thank you. What investigations, if any, might you want to do? Absolutely. You'd want to start with a, uh, a set of plain x-rays or plain radiographs. And that really is more to rule out other conditions. It's not uncommon to see mild or moderate AC joint arthritis and maybe even mild glenohumeral joint arthritis on these x-rays. But we really want to rule out any uh, fracture, significant arthritis that may be restricting range of motion or any other uh, pathologies visible on the x-ray. So that's our baseline imaging. If you have availability for ultrasound, you can also use the ultrasound to rule out rotator cuff tear or other conditions. Commonly, we will also order an MRI to evaluate for the rotator cuff. There's a telltale sign uh, of adhesive capsulitis on the MRI that you can see, which is thickening of the glenohumeral joint capsule, specifically in the inferior axillary recess. Uh, there will be decreased uh, space available in the axillary recess, and the capsule itself will be very thick. And so if you see that in the absence of other significant findings, such as a large massive rotator cuff tear, or advanced glenohumeral joint arthritis, then that's more indicative of adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. Thank you. You mentioned a number of differential diagnoses and how to rule them out, um, but you also mentioned shoulder joint instability. How would you rule that out? So you can rule out shoulder joint instability with a handful of tests. The apprehension and relocation tests are common for anterior shoulder instability. Kim and jerk tests are common for posterior instability. And then the load and shift test is common for both anterior and posterior instability. Frequently, these will be negative with adhesive capsulitis. And indeed, if you're seeing the patient in advance, in the advanced frozen stage, you may not even be able to get the shoulder into position to perform these exam maneuvers. And these are physical examination maneuvers. Yes. One thing that will be quite distinct is that um, oftentimes patients with adhesive capsulitis will have positive impingement si uh, signs and findings on exam. Near and Hawkins examination maneuvers are frequently performed to examine for shoulder impingement. And these may be positive with adhesive capsulitis, but a key distinguishing 
key distinguishing feature is that patients will also all often notice that uh, not only do they have pain with impingement maneuvers, but they also have pain pain at rest, um, and that's a key distinguishing finding in adhesive, adhesive capsulitis as well. Okay, thank you. And one thing you you haven't mentioned is polymyalgia rheumatica. Um, how would you tell it from polymyalgia? Yeah, that's a that's a tough clinical distinction. Uh, but again, the 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 main finding is going to be the the key is that there's restriction in both active and passive range of motion. So if if as the examiner you cannot passively internally rotate, externally rotate, abduct the shoulder. Uh, within 20 or 30 degrees of the contralateral side, that's a key indicator of adhesive capsulitis. Okay, thank you. I'm nearly going to finish with diagnosis in a minute. One last one on diagnosis. Are pitfalls in diagnosis? You've kind of been mentioning a number already um, related to differentials. Any other potential pitfalls, I wonder? It's really hard um, if the patient is in a lot of pain and may be apprehensive um, in terms of not shoulder apprehension, but they may be such in such pain that your exam may be limited and you may not be able to get a full exam because the patient simply doesn't tolerate it. And we're going to talk about treatment here in a second. And this is where one of the treatments that we perform, which is corticosteroid injection in combination with lidocaine or marcaine or um, some sort of local anesthetic can help distinguish if we can take away that pain and repeat an exam and we still have restricted passive range of motion, that furthers your, your diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis. Okay, thank you. So let's move on to, to management uh, then. What, what is the mainstay of management? The mainstay of management depends on what phase that we initially see the patient in. So if we see the patient and they presented in the painful phase, our key goal is to decrease the pain uh, in order to uh, facilitate physical therapy and range of motion therapy. If the patient presents in the frozen phase, again, we're going to be working towards restoring that range of motion. And there's different approaches to that, but the mainstay of, uh, of treatment early in the disease course is to, to mitigate pain, relieve pain, so that the patient um, is more comfortable and tolerates the disease course throughout its natural course. Okay, and, and how would you reduce pain? So I initially start with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, oral anti-inflammatories are very effective. There is some evidence that uh, uh, steroid dose packs may be beneficial in decreasing pain. Neither of these medication therapies has any effect in the overall disease course in terms of timing uh, of restoration of full range of motion. So they, they will not lengthen or they will not shorten the amount of time that the patient has restricted range of motion. However, they can, they can aid in pain relief along the way. And so those two, I typically start with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are key in helping keep the patient comfortable, especially as you initiate some physical therapy. Uh, okay, got it. And and you mentioned steroid dose packs, I think. What exactly is that? So a meddrol or prednisone dose pack will be beneficial. Uh, it's a steroid taper that can, um, you know, there's high level studies that show that this results in decreased pain initially um, in, in the early course of adhesive capsulitis. Um, and so those can be beneficial in that regard. Okay, so so you're talking about maybe oral prednisolone 
uh, and you'd start off and then taper the dose over the time. Correct. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of physical therapy, would you refer to a physiotherapist? I do, yes. And so um, we want to do, this is the, uh, you got to hit the sweet spot on physical therapy. It's been shown that aggressive physical therapy pushing through the patient's pain may actually worsen uh, their symptoms and cause a, a slower recovery of range of motion. Um, but at the same time, we do want to initiate some physical therapy because that has, has been shown to be beneficial. So we want to do just the right amount, which can lead its, lend itself more to the art of medicine than the science. It's hard to design level one studies that, that demonstrate the appropriate amount of physical therapy. But for me, I approach it first. I want to decrease or eliminate the patient's pain as much as possible and then do some gentle, active, and passive range of motion therapy to to help restore the range of motion as soon as we can. Okay, thank you. What about pitfalls in management? What are the main pitfalls in management? Yeah, I think um, a couple of the pitfalls are being too aggressive with therapy early on um, and pushing the patient into more pain. Uh, Second is uh, being a little too aggressive with surgical management. Um, I think Prior to any surgical management, we want to optimize our oral anti-inflammatories or oral steroid intake to decrease pain as much as possible. The second thing, which we haven't talked about yet, is uh, steroid injections. And there's um, some high-level evidence that's come out recently showing that multiple locations of steroid injections can be beneficial. Um, And so these injection options include a subacromial injection, a suprascapular nerve injection, and a glenohumeral joint injection. And a combination of those injections can be very beneficial in relieving pain so that patients can do effective physical therapy. I think a mistake would be jumping right to manipulation under anesthesia or capsular releases with surgery early on in the disease course before you've attempted some of these non-operative treatments. Okay, thank you. And I'm guessing that those operative treatments might be held in reserve for patients who just don't respond uh, to other treatments. Absolutely. Another pitfall would be simply misdiagnosis. Um, you know, if if the uh, diagnosis of a partial rotator cuff tear is made um, without the recognition of uh, restricted range of motion and adhesive capsulitis, surgical management of a partial rotator cuff tear, for example, may exacerbate the stiffness and adhesive capsulitis in the patient. Okay, thank you. I've got a slightly random question now. Can adhesive capsulitis affect both shoulders? Yes, absolutely. So that that has been described, and it has been described in patients with underlying conditions such as diabetes, thyroid uh, conditions, that does increase the risk of bilateral adhesive capsulitis, and it can happen uh, at the same time, simultaneously or sequentially, where one shoulder is affected after the other. And so certainly patients should be counseled that if they have adhesive capsulitis, they are certainly at risk of developing it in the contralateral shoulder. Okay, thank you. Last question, which is about questions. What have we missed, Lance? What other questions should I have asked you about adhesive capsulitis? Yeah, I think um, a lot of patients ask us, well, is there anything new on the horizon? And I think um, there is exciting basic science work at a cellular level trying to understand the pathology of this condition, but currently there's no silver bullet coming down, coming down the pike, um, you know, that's going to 
revolutionize the treatment. Um, hopefully that's coming at some point, but I think the key still remains recognition and patient counseling. The best thing we can do for our patients is talk to them about the condition and manage their expectations. Unfortunately, this is not a condition that we can expect to resolve in a matter of a week or even a month. This is a long-term condition that patients need to be ready um, to, to work towards getting through, but it, it can be a prolonged recovery. And so managing those expectations up front is really important. Okay, thank you. And one last slightly random question. It used to be called frozen shoulder, but no longer seems to be called frozen shoulder. Why is that? Is that because the frozen part of it is just one part of the trajectory over time? I think, yeah, I think um, at times the terms are still used interchangeably, um, but I think adhesive capsulitis really tries to speak not only to, as you mentioned, the multiple phases of the condition, but also the the, the pathology involved, um, which, you know, as we mentioned, we're still trying to get a, a handle on at a basic science level, but I think it is meant to be more inclusive. But patients do definitely understand the term frozen shoulder uh, a little bit better than adhesive capsulitis, I think. Okay. Thank you very much, Lance. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. Thank you.